Welcome to the Daily Dad Podcast, where we provide one lesson every single day to help you with your most important job, being a parent. I'm Ryan Holiday, and I draw these lessons from ancient philosophy, modern psychology, practical wisdom, and insights from parents just like you all over the world. Thank you for listening, and we hope this helps. Hey, it's Ryan. Welcome to another weekend episode of the Daily Dad Podcast. Today, I wanted to bring you two things I think we're all, we're all trying to do. One is how to raise resilient kids. And two, we're going to talk a little bit about maintaining work-life balance. And in the first part of the episode, we're going to hear from Dr. William Stixrud and Ned Johnson on how to raise resilient kids. Absolutely love their book, The Self-Driven Child. We sell it at the Painted Porch. If you haven't picked it up, please do pick up a copy. I've interviewed them twice now. Great guys. Their philosophy has very much influenced my philosophy and thinking as a parent. So we're going to talk about uh, not just their book, The Self-Driven Child, but also their new book, What Do You Say? How to Talk to Kids to Build Motivation, Stress, Tolerance, and a Happy Home. We're going to talk about experiencing adversity, how to develop resilience as this pandemic has demanded of all of us and how we teach kids to find purpose and control in their own lives. And then the second part of the episode, you're going to hear me and my friend, Coach Shaka Smart, talk about how to maintain work-life balance. There's almost no one less balanced than college coaches, uh, professional coaches as well, but college sports coaches. It's an inherently unbalanced profession, but so is being a writer, so is being a a stockbroker, so is being a school teacher. These professions demand so much of you. So how do you be great at what you do and find a way to manage work and family? How to do both of those things well? It's in some ways impossible, but uh, it's something worth talking about. So here are some great thoughts. Three great experts, Dr. William Stixred and Ned Johnson, and then uh, the one and only Shaka Smart, bringing you some hard-won parenting lessons. Uh, that I very much wanted to re-listen to myself this year. Enjoy. I had such a great time talking with you guys last time. I had some more questions about the first book, and then we'll transition to the new book, which I'm also very excited about. I wondered what you thought of this idea. I've I've seen people write about it. I've heard people talk about it, but um, this idea that, you know, they're, they're sort of referring to like a lost year, right? Like for kids, this is a lost year. Now it's going on year number two. Um, certainly, there's obviously been immense consequences to the pandemic, and it's tragic that it's happened. You know that that, that kids had to be affected in any way uh, by the irresponsible <laughs> decisions of adults and and leaders. But I don't know. My my initial reaction to hearing it, uh, and I guess we always have to think about where we're privileged and you know what other people are going through. But it struck me as a very fragile view of our kids, right? Like when I talk to a my grandmother or my grandfather who lived through the depression, you know, they don't, they don't talk about it as this like lost year. It's, it's sort of a source of uh, wisdom and experience for them. So I'm just curious how you think uh, having written so much about kind of the forced and unnecessary fragility and uh, of, of, of a sort of a generation of parenting, how, how do you think about the adversity that you've just seen all these kids go through? Well, you know, I think that Ned and I see that uh, quite differently than, than than this idea that it's a lost year. In fact, Ned, Ned wrote a piece in the New York Times pretty early on in the pandemic 
suggesting that this could be an opportunity to, to build stress tolerance and resilience and wisdom uh, in kids. And you know, in our first book, The Self-Driven Child, we talk about the way the way that, that people become able to, to, to what we call develop high stress tolerance, that, that kind of ability to function well and handle the challenges of life. It's by doing so. It's by being in a challenging situation, your prefrontal cortex has to, has to activate to figure out what to do. And then if it, as long as you have time to recover, once you, you cope, you go into coping mode, then you recover. That's what, that's what builds that confidence that I can handle hard things. And we, we see many kids who, who are really thriving, who, who are gaining confidence. They can handle hard things. They can handle loss. They can handle uncertainty that they weren't sure they could handle before. I'd, I'd love to hear Ned's angle on this. I, I agree with all that. I, th- I think there's also a question of when do you assess, right? You know, during the middle of the pandemic, right when it ends, a month later, a year later? Because exactly right, you know, I, that it's, ex- it's the experience of, of adversity with support, you know, th- that develops resilience. Uh, you know, and and I forget if we shared when last time I spoke, I mean, you know, I had a family that had a lot of headwinds. My father's an alcoholic who eventually, you know, drank himself to death. My mother struggled with her mental health. I spent three months of seventh grade in a pediatric hospital. And I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But at this point in my life, I, I'm really convinced, you know, that I can handle almost anything. Because when I think about what I've gone through, you know, I'm th- it gives me the confidence that I can get through other hard stuff. You know, if you're going to be an epic hero in every movie, you, you don't just get, you know, you know, someone has a sword on your shoulder and, hey, you're the hero now. You got to go out and do stuff and you, you get- You earn it. You get beat up. Yeah. And it, because it's really, it's the, you know, it's resilience, if we remind ourselves that it, the kind of metallurgical definition of, of resilience is the ability to return to a previous shape. And, we, and, and I think that same thing applies to us, you know, emotionally, that the only way you develop that is if you get a little bent out of shape and then come back. And, you know, for, you know, before the pandemic, we had, you know, hundreds of articles. Well, the kids, they got no resilience. They can't, they'll cream puffs. They can't handle nothing, right? Well, now, now we've got our opportunity. And, and, and I wouldn't wish challenge or difficulty or hurt or, or all the terrible things. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. But it really is how do we deal with that? You know, how do we come together? How do we try to find solutions? How do we convey courage to our kids, even though things are scary, as opposed to let's everyone go hide in a bunker and just wait for this all to be over? Because in the meantime, life goes on. No, and it's everything you're saying also applies to adults, too. There's a great line from Seneca where he's talking about he's like, I actually pity the person who's never gone through adversity, he says, because they don't know what they're capable of. They have no they've never been bloodied. They've you know, they've never gotten up. So they don't know if they can get up. And so it, it's it's sort of strange that our, yeah, as you said, we sort of criticize people for not being resilient. We wonder, you know, what would I ever do if I had to live through, you know, a moment like this? Uh, or we think like, what would I learn from a near-death experience? And then then we have it and we we spend all our time resenting it and pretending that it's, you know, insurmountable. It seems strange. Well, Ryan, I'll tell you this, you know, four, four, um, four, five, six weeks ago, whatever it was now, I was in the middle of recording the audio for this book, What Do You Say? 
And I came out from the auto. I got my wife on the phone. Um, my son had been having all these migraines, these weird aura things. And there's some family history of that. And we get him on the phone and um, the three of us and his language and he drops a word and then he drops another word. And then his language starts to fall apart. And I'm like, what is going on? Ask my wife to call me the other line. I thought he's having a stroke. Fast forward, my son's diagnosed with a brain tumor. Now, oh. fortunately, well-mannered kid that he is, he chose the one that seems to be most amenable to chemotherapy. And so he's going through the middle of this. But I swear, a week ago, he said to the two of us, he said, you know, I have had such a, 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 an easy life. You know, you, know I, I, you guys are great parents. You know, you know we we're financially stable. I have friends. I'm in school. You know, I, you know I'm, 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 you know, white. I mean, everything that, that you could make, make life easier to get through life. He has, he's had so many, so many advantages. And he said, I always wondered when would something happen to me that would challenge me? And I thought, fascinating. Now, I don't wish a brain tumor on anyone, certainly not on my kid. But I thought, holy smokes, what an interesting way that, that that's where his brain went. And, and his, I mean, he's a glass half full kind of guy anyway. But very, I mean, it's sort of, he started taking a line from, you know, uh, from the Mark, Matt Damon, the Martian, right? Let's work the problem. Okay, what are sure. we going to do? And, and because what, you know, what else can, can you do? And he's thinking, I'm going to be stronger for having gone through this. And what kind of message is it sending your kids that you sort of write them off as being irrevocably harmed by, you know, missing uh, most of fifth grade or having to do sixth grade or 11th grade remotely? It, it does strike me that in the, the scheme of adversity, you know, that's nothing compared to a brain tumor or nothing compared to yeah. what ancestrally we are all descended from people who endured far worse things. Well, yeah, and, and there's we, we talk about this great there's a researcher named Sonia Lupian who who used that acronym of nuts of what stresses people out, and she said that one of the single best ways to combat stress is to have a plan B, right? And so you know, and so what we always want to do when we find ourselves stuck, right, or in a hard position, that we think, well, what what else can I do? What else can I do? What else can I do? Because you know, whether you're a family or whether a corporation, you're constantly saying that didn't work out as planned. How can we pivot? What's another solution? And so, again, this is a hard time. And, and I know I've had it easier than, than other families have. But I think one of the more helpful things we can do is to keep saying, well, that, yeah, that's lousy that you zoom on school. That's pretty terrible. And, and. Right. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? What, what, right. What's, your, what's right. your response? Right. What else can we make out of this? And I, we also, um, in, in both books, we talk about, we mentioned the work of Byron Katie, who's, who's thinking, mm -hmm. I think, is very similar to a lot of the Stoic thinking about the, the idea that for all we know, what's happening right now, whatever it is, is what's so, supposed to be happening because we, we, there, there's no evidence that, that something different is supposed to, to be happening. And uh, one of the people I've learned the most from is meditation teacher, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi who used to say that the world is as it should be. And people ask him, well, why are you working so hard to change it? He'd say, that's also as it should be. And I think that, that we, we, we emphasize the, the, the wisdom of, of teaching kids to, to, to not, not to immediately judge the word that this is bad or this is good, but to say that this is the way it is, make peace with it, and then decide, do I, do I, want, to, do I want to try to change this? Could this be better? Well, that's the Stoic idea of amor fati, the sort of uh, that mm -hmm. comes from Nietzsche. You know, not to not not just to bear what what has happened, but to love it. To go, this was chosen for me. This and 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 I again, this is easy to say. You know, about Zoom 
uh, fifth grade, it's harder to say about a brain tumor or losing a job or 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 what have you, uh, or, or even the worst traumas out there. But the idea is, it happened. So having ha- having negative thoughts towards it doesn't make it unhappen, and it does make it <clears throat> harder for you to focus on what you do next. Have you guys seen the Jocko Willink video, Good? Uh, it's like the super viral uh, video, uh, but it struck me as similar to the self-driven uh, child philosophy, which is basically he's a Navy SEAL commander and, and, and he's relating this conversation where you know they're preparing for this mission or they're on this mission and, and one of the men keeps coming to him and going, you know, hey, we're, we're not going to have enough time. And he says, good. And he says, hey, you know, we just lost all the supplies. And he says, good. You know, and he says, and uh, one of the guys is sick. And he says, good. Uh, you know, sort of over and over again, this idea of good, because, um, again, saying that it's bad doesn't do anything. Uh, but saying that, it, it, that it's good does inform the attitude to which you are going to orient your response around. And that, that's also what the idea of the obstacle is the way. I, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I'm not sure people were doing this during the depression. They were probably spending a lot of time talking about how bad it was and how these, you know, fat cats in Washington were all to blame or whatever. But yeah. at the same time, uh, they, you, you do, you do have the choice about whether it's going to be a formative experience for you. And it seems like parents have spent a lot of time blaming, resenting, uh, venting instead of going, here's how our family was improved by what we went through. Here's what we taught our kids, you know, using the world, uh, events that were occurring around us as, as they happen. I think, I think that's actually right. There's a, there's a, a success coach from the eighties and nineties named Brian Tracy, who's work Bill and I both, uh, yeah. liked a lot. And he, and he has this, tells a story about some industrialist in either 1910 or whatever, who summoned, um, from his sleep to come down to, to only to find the factory engulfed in flames. And as the thing is burning to the ground, he sits there and watches for about 10 minutes and then declares to his secretaries or whoever ministers who are nearby and said, well, this is fantastic news. I just have to figure out why. <laughs> sure. Well, I, I tell a story in The Obstacle is the Way about Thomas Edison. He, he, yeah. Exact scene. Factory is on fire. His son is standing there shell-shocked. And uh, Edison grabs him and he says, go get your mother. Uh, they'll never see a fire like this again. Uh, he says, go get your mother and all her friends. They'll never see a fire like this again. Wow. I think about the parenting lesson of that. Like You're essentially witnessing your dad at his worst, right? The worst career moment of your dad. You're watching your inheritance go up in flames, <laughs> but your your dad finds some semblance of good in it, and he he rallies the family around. and And Edison does, you know, he says to a reporter the next day, you know, I've been through things like this before. It, it's going to prevent me from getting bored. And he rebuilds <laughs> and he gets to work. And you think about what a lesson that would be to your children, and then you go, oh yeah, but that's you know, that's Edison. I, I haven't experienced things like that. And it strikes me. It's like, you did, that's what the last 18 months have been. And yet right. we've been sort of looking that gift horse in the mouth because the gift horse never looks like a gift. Hmm. You know, I, I, I in the self-driven child, we talk about, um, we have a strong emphasis on, on parents thinking about themselves as kids get older, it's more as a consultant to their kid who's, who's, whose role is to help their kid figure out what kind of life they want and how, to, how they want to live it. 
Um, and part of the reason that we, we, we support this kind of idea and want kids to practice making their own decisions is that I don't know whether a kid makes a decision, whether it's going to be a good decision or not. Is, is never saying, well, when, when do you judge? Is it a year later or five years later? But when I, I first time I went to I was graduate school, I was, in, I was in a doctoral program in English at the University of California, Berkeley. And I went 20, 20 weeks without turning an assignment. So I flunked out. And it felt like my whole life was going up in smoke. And it took about two months for me to realize it was the best possible thing that could have happened to me because I, I, I just felt like an imposter as an English student. And then when I became a psychologist, these are more my people. I, this, this, but who knows? I mean, who knows when something happens, if it's bad or good? And then the idea mm-hmm. of this is a wasted year, it, it just doesn't make any logical sense because it's, it, 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 you're making what we call the, the fortune-telling error that I can predict that this is going to have a terrible effect on, on a kid's life, as opposed to maybe a mixed bag or maybe actually advantageous. You know, you look back at the things your parents gave you as a kid that they were probably consuming when you were a kid, and it's pretty appalling, whether it was cereal or the, the gummy vitamins you would take, who knows what was in them. But today's sponsor has an answer to that question. Ritual vitamins have none of those things, no sugars, no GMOs, major allergens, synthetic fillers, or artificial colorants, and that's what makes Ritual great, and they are made traceable. You always know what nutrients you're taking and where they come from thanks to Ritual's one-of-a-kind visible supply chain. They've got great vitamins, including some great vitamins for kids, or my oldest son takes them. Ritual multivitamins are delivered to your door every month with free shipping always. You can start, snooze, or cancel your subscription anytime. If you don't love Ritual within your first month, they refund your order. Get key nutrients without the BS for you and your kids. Ritual is offering my listeners 10% off during the first three months. Visit ritual.com slash daily dad to start your ritual today. The single best thing you can do for your kids is to take care of yourself. And BetterHelp will help you do that. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist today. You'll be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. They have a broad range of expertise available, which you might not be able to get in your area. That's one of the benefits of doing it digitally. Then the service is available for all clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. BetterHelp wants to help you start living a happier life today. You can visit betterhelp.com slash daily dad. That's betterhelp.com. You can join over 2 million people who have taken the charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp. They are recruiting additional therapists in all 50 states. There's a special offer for Daily Dad listeners. You get 10% off first month, betterhelp.com slash daily dad. No, I think there's that Zen proverb about the man who discovers a horse, then his son breaks his leg on the horse, and then he doesn't fight in a war because his leg is broken. It goes on and on. But but the father replies each time everyone says, oh, you're so lucky, or they say, oh, you're mm-hmm. so unlucky. He just says, we'll see. And I, I do think what, what you're saying that I think is really helpful, I'm glad you said it, I'm going to try to apply it myself, is just like a elongate the, the, the horizon with which you're looking at this event with your children um, and, and try to get them to do the same thing. It feels terrible that they just got dumped. It feels terrible that they just got cut from the basketball team. It seems like it's a huge disadvantage that they're doing remote ninth grade, 
but we'll see because we don't know. And to think that we know is to be both arrogant and naive. Right. And this, this Byron Katie I mentioned who, who, who wrote a book called Loving What Is, which is you know, the basic yeah. uh, idea. And you know, it asked, simply says, when something happens, ask, is it true? Is it, is it true that this is a terrible thing? Is it true? Is it re- and can I, can I really be sure that this is a wa- going to be a wasted year? And if we're honest with ourselves, we could almost never really be sure. And then the question is, if, if I'm not, if not sure about it, why torture myself like this? Is, is this going to help me think about, is this making more flexible and adaptable? And usually, usually, usually not so much. Well, yeah, that's the essence of stoicism. Events are objective. Our opinions about them are not. And it's our opinions that upset us. So that's mm-hmm. the other thing is like, you don't have to call it a good year. You don't have to go in the, 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 as far as Jocko. You also don't need to go as far as it's a bad year. It just is, right? Like you don't need to have any judgment about it whatsoever because it's simply a fact. And, and you know, if your kid was born with glass, you know, born with bat, eyesight that they have to get glasses, you don't have to have an opinion about this. It, that's just what their eyesight is, right? Like mm-hmm. you would obviously try to address it. You know, you have a kid who's good at sports and you have another kid who's not good at sports. It's not good or bad. It's just, it's just who they are. And uh, your opinion is actually what's going to cause the distress because it's going to make one of them feel superior and the other one feel inferior when in reality we're all dealt different strengths and weaknesses and we simply are. Right. Nobody gets everything. Yeah. And just going, going back to, to Ned's point about, you know, in both books, we, we, we say we, we, want, we want to communicate courage to, to kids rather than, than fear. And the last thing we want to do is feel sorry for kids. We, we don't want to pity sure. kids because we don't want them to feel sorry for themselves. I mean, self-pity is never, never very attractive. It isn't never There's very, not a lot of agency in, in <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so the, the idea that somehow, oh, this is such a wasted year, the poor babies, it's just not a helpful attitude. And it's certainly, it's understandable. And, and God, God knows so many people that we work with have been, have been having a really tough time. And I'm not, and I'm not taking that, I'm not taking that away. But I am saying, I don't want kids to feel far, far, sorry for themselves. So I choose not to feel sorry for them. So that, that was how I was going to transition to talking about the new book, because, you know, so we have our tropes as parents, as a society. You know, we say, you know, that uh, we talk about our, our duty. We talk about our responsibility to other people. We talk about the American ideals. You know, we, we talk about so much stuff. And then it strikes me that, uh, you know, then... And our kids hear all this. They hear our indoctrination and they hear our myths and they hear what we say is important. And then they look at how people actually behave and then they get Mm -hmm. a sense of the difference between, you know, action, uh, practice and and principle. And I think one of the things that makes me the most sad about the last year is just kind of, there's no nice way to say this, but we really showed a generation of, of young people that, is particularly older people showed that young to younger people that they're basically full of shit, that they don't care about anyone but themselves, that this idea of sacrifice, this idea of uh, being resilient, this idea of, you know, putting other people first of doing that. The right thing is what matters all this. It, how, how generationally can we, can we possibly communicate as a society, I guess I'm specifically referring to America, but no country seems to have done extremely well. But like, how can we communicate louder 
than our actions have communicated over the last year. It's, I mean, it's just been sort of abysmal. I think that's sort of the tragedy of, of the boomer generation as they've aged has been sort of those high-minded ideals versus the, sure, but I don't want to I don't want to have to give up my vacation house or, you know, I don't want, you know, like, do you know what I'm saying? It, it seems like we're, we're really struggling between what we claim to believe and then how we act when situations are stressful or difficult or would come at the slightest personal cost to us, talking about whether it's mask wearing and vaccines or nimbyism or climate change. It, it strikes me that we're having, we're in a crisis where we've communicated so loudly our at the disparity between our actions and our ideals. And when you frame that up, I mean, part of what I, what I hear in there is, 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 is when we talk about high-minded ideals, a lot of that is about the, the common good, right? And, yeah. and shared values and shared goals and, and shared sacrifice. And then you see a lot of people acting far from that, you know, really selfishly. Exactly. Um, and it's pretty, it's pretty distressing. Um, and I'm not sure I have a full solution to that. I mean, sir, <laughs> if I did, we could probably solve, you know, political, political gridlock. Um, you know, I also, I also like, um, and this may be Pollyannish, but you know, the, the, the William, great psychologist William James says, you know, our experience consists of that which we choose to attend to, because we can also look around to people who have evinced, you know, heroic ideals and have lived you know, live their lives with tremendous grace and, and, and done more than their fair share. I mean, my twin brother is a paramedic. And so he's a, he's about as frontline as frontline people get. Sure. And it's been, it's been, a, it's been a year and he gets pretty upset with folks. Um, but I also sit there and watch, you know, what him and, and people like him do and go, yeah, I mean, there are, the, the, it's not everyone, sadly, you know, m many hands make light work. Um, but I also, I also try, well, what's it, Fred, Fred Rogers says, look for the helpers, right? Yeah. So I think there can be, while we gnash our teeth about, you know, goings on, I think it's also helpful to look to our, to when we're talking to our kids to help them look to or at people who are, who are living those, those, those ideals, even if it seems like those people are few and far between. Well, that's something I've, I've tried to to think about too, you know, it's easy to go look at the lack of courage in these politicians or look at the selfishness, you know, in, in so-and-so, but ultimately what we control is what's up to us. Right. I was thinking about, mm -hmm. you know, I, I was actually just talking at a, a friend over, we were talking uh, outside and, you know, he's a pretty liberal guy and he was just talking about, you know, this, this, uh, this birthday party that Obama threw, um, what a missed opportunity it was for leadership to, to sort of, instead of criticizing what other people are doing, instead of criticizing the choices or the selfishness of other leaders or other groups, um, which, which may, you know, have the vast majority of impact, you know, maybe disproportionately causing the majority of the harm or the hypocrisy, but you don't control that. What you do control is the choices that your family makes, right? And so, you know, I guess what I'm saying is we'll decry the, the, the lack of courage in some politician or something. And then meanwhile, like, you know, we're afraid we're, we're sitting at the dinner table talking about, you know, uh, how we refuse to stand up to our boss. Right. Or, mm -hmm. or again, we'll talk about this group not doing this or that. And then we throw a big birthday party or, you know, we're, we're, we're violating the COVID protocols ourselves in our own small way, saying essentially we want other people to be sticklers, but when it's my call, 
then I always have an excuse or a reason. I guess at the end of the day, what you communicate to your kids by example in the things you control is what really matters the most. That, that's, that seems mm-hmm. absolutely right. And I mean, especially with you know, teenagers are so perceptive about uh, inconsistencies and hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And you know, there's, a, there's a chapter in our new book. Uh, it, it's called Talking with Kids About the Pursuit of Happiness. And what we focus on is, is that, that young people are growing up with, with all these nutty ideas about what makes life, what makes people happy. And we, we focus on some of the research that, that focus on the importance, for example, of meaning, for, of relationships. So the, the, the research that suggests that you're actually happier if you give stuff away than accumulate it for yourself. You're happier if you do something for, for somebody else than if you do something for yourself. And I think that... Uh, what we're hoping is, is that, and we're also, it's also mentioned that we're uh, in various places, we talk about the importance of asking kids to really think about their highest ideals with a family goal of all of us, you know, trying to live lives that are in accord with our highest ideals. Because as you're suggesting, you know, we, we often don't, but it's a practice. It's a practice with the goal of aligning our life with the highest ideals. And we talk in our book about helping kids do that because in, in part because it, it, it helps it's, it's one of the keys to being happy but also it's just good for everybody yeah we, t- we tell our kids you know like uh, education is important and then it was like when was the last time they saw you read a book right or you know we, we tell them that like money is not the most important thing and then we complain about the job we hate that we do for money or you know we tell ourselves uh honesty is important. And then they see us, you know, lying to get out of a ticket. And I think that's really been the difficulty with COVID. And I, I'm not saying that parents have been letting their kids down, but certainly uh, gener- and a lot of these issues, whether it's COVID or climate change, or just sort of kicking the, the political can down the road. We say we love our kids. We say that, you know, they're more important to us than anything. And then sort of generationally, we're not making the difficult short-term decisions that would have, you know, important long-term consequences. Uh, you, you know what I mean? Like we're, yeah, we're not, think, we're not actually think, putting them first in the decisions we think about. I think that's exactly right. You know, and, and, and to, so back to the idea about values that the, the more consistently we can write about, you know, journaling, you can talk about what are our, our core values, the easier it is to have short-term behaviors that align with longer-term goals. And that's true. I mean, that's true whether, you know, you're, you know, tr- trying to be an Olympic athlete or you're, you know, a, a business person or, or whether you're a political political leader. And if, if our focus is always on the short-term, you know, the next dollar, the next election cycle, the, the whatever, then we're, 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 we're not going to put, we're putting our energy into that short-term thing at the expense of the future. And so, you know, for us as, as, as leaders in whatever, you know, whether it's business or, or, or faith or, or our families, that to, to spend time really talking about those highest values makes it much easier for, for our short-term actions to fall in line with, with what we espouse to be our highest values. Yeah. What, what are you modeling to your kids and to the future generations in the decisions you're making and the actions that you're taking right now? Mm-hmm. I, I just wonder, you know, so, many, so, so much of what we think about and write about and talk with kids about and talk with parents about is, is this crazy idea of kids growing up thinking the most important outcome 
of their childhood and adolescence is where they go to college. Right. And, and, and you just wonder, what, what do people who think that, what do they think the purpose of life is? Right. Is the purpose of life to accumulate the most stuff? Or, or is it to have the most prestige or the most power over people? And I think that if we really think about what, what, why are we here? Well, what, what kind of life do we want to create? What, what we, we, in the book, we talk about talking to kids about if, there, if there's a reason you're here, what do you think the reason is that you're here? What, what do you have to offer this world? And it's just a very different way of thinking than uh, you need to get A's so you can get to the top college and, and make a lot of money. Yeah, there's, a, there's an essay from Plutarch where he's talking about um, educating children and he's talking about how, you know, a wealthy parent, you know, they know they're going to pass on like a, an inheritance to their kids. So they spend a lot of time and a lot of money setting up a trust fund or, you know, writing their will. So, it, you know, it, 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 so the kids don't fight with each other and the money is managed responsibly and blah, blah, blah. And he goes, wouldn't it be better? And obviously estate planning is important, but he goes, wouldn't it be better just to raise some children who wouldn't fall out with their family over money, you know, or wouldn't, uh, you know, would be able to manage, you know, an inheritance uh, properly, you know, like, it, so it is interesting. Yeah, we, we sometimes forget that, like, just raising an adaptable, hardworking, decent human being those people are very rarely unsuccessful in life. Meanwhile, a lot of people go to great schools or get great grades or do amazing on the SAT, and they completely fail at life because they don't have those other skills that we're just talking about. Hmm. You know, I, I was lecturing in, in Houston. I can't remember if I mentioned this last time, Ryan, but I was lecturing in Houston a couple of years ago about the self-driven child. And I mentioned that one of the most elite schools in D.C., and I don't remember the context, but I, I did. And somebody came up to me afterward and said, I'm, I'm a therapist here at the Menninger Clinic in, in Houston, which is one of the very prestigious mental health places. So we, we know the school in D.C. really well because so many of the graduates, they get into these top colleges, but they can't handle them emotionally. You know, they've never had to deal with adversity. They've had their kind of life program for them. And so they, they, they take a medical leave and they come here for treatment. And I think that, that you know, Ned and, Ned's in my angle is that, that our goal for kids is for them to be able to run their own life before they go off to college or go off to do whatever they're going to do. And, and so that, that's our goal for as parents is, is, is helping kids learn to run their own life and run it in a way that's, satis that's meaningful to them. Yeah, and I mean, you do see in coaches in particular, but probably any elite profession, it really is easy it's almost easier to be great at one of the things at the expense of the other. So, you know, coaches get really lopsided, right? They're world-class at what they do, but they haven't seen their kids in three weeks, even though they're at home, right? Like, cause they work crazy hours or they're traveling. And, and, uh, how do you think about the, how do you think about the totality of what success looks like to you? And how do you balance, you know, yeah. I, I imagine your job could, could consume, 200% of your time if you allowed it. Yeah. So, you know, people talk about work-life balance. Yeah. If you're really, really good at what you do, uh, well, at least in, in my line of work, and I would say probably yours, yeah. you are not going to have work-life balance. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have some type of, you know, uh, ratio there. Now, maybe there's other jobs where you could do a great job for two or three hours and then, you know, spend the rest of your time with your family. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is when you think about 
your role as a father or husband uh, or other roles outside of your job, you have to clearly define what success is. Uh, because if you think about it, let's say we polled 100 people that are, you know, that follow your newsletter letter or people that are fans of yours. And you said to those 100 people, okay, is family important to you? I'm thinking 98, 99, 100 okay. of those people are going to say yes. Yes. But if you said to them, okay, what does that mean? What does that look like? You'd have someone that would say, it's very important to me that I cook breakfast for my wife and kids every day. Sure. Well, if that's the case, then necessarily you're not getting to the office at 6 a.m. Okay, right. or 7 a.m. because you're there to cook breakfast. Then you're going to have another person that says, my family is so important to me, but what's really important is that I know that they're safe. I know that they're taken care of. I know that financially they're in good position. So it's not as much about necessarily being around them a ton. It's about looking out and taking care of them. And I think that's for when you think about the people that are maybe obsessed with what they do for a living, yeah. but also care about their families. I would say they probably look at it more in that latter way. Yeah. Someone, someone once told me that love is spelled uh, T I M E. So I think, you know, you say things are important to you. I think this applies to anything, right? So it's like, you say writing is important or coaching is important or family is important or church is important or whatever it is. But then it's like, show me your calendar, you know, like show me how you're spending your time. Um, because that that's really the ultimate statement of your priorities is your, are, are your choices. Like, what are you doing day to day? And I think this is why the journaling exercise, uh, you're talking about is so valuable because, um, it forces you to check. You, you can't get, you know, you can't wake up six years later and go, oh, this is why I got divorced. I got on a really bad track, right? Or like, this is why I got fired. I wasn't, I, I wasn't, you know, committed to the job. You you can't get as far off track because you're checking your bearings and your your GPS location on a nightly or a morning basis. And you're you're able to see like, here's what I say is important, here's how it's going. What are the micro adjustments I need to make day to day? Just like a coach checks in at halftime with the team and goes, here's, here was the plan. Here's how we played the last two quarters. Guys, this isn't going to get us where we want to go. Absolutely. But Ryan, I'm going to challenge you okay. to add a fourth component. Okay. To my three or to your three. Okay. Yeah. So you got your three, you got your, your kids, you got your wife and you yeah. got your job. Yes. Okay. And so. I really, really believe you need a fourth one. You ready for okay. this? Yes. Okay. And you can call it whatever you want. The words sometimes obscure what really matters. Um, but I need your fourth thing to be presence, mindfulness, spiritual path, awareness, whatever it is you want to call sure. it. Because if you think about it, how you're doing with that fourth component goes a long way towards what goes into the first three. Sure. And to add to your point about time expressing priorities. Yeah. It's like really good time. In other words, you can yes. spend three hours with your kids, but if you're not there mentally and you're not in the moment, yes, then you're not being a good dad and you're actually setting a bad example for them, which we all do sometimes, unfortunately. 
Hey, you're listening to the Daily Dad Podcast, one meditation a day inspired to help you do your most important job, which is be a great father. These are meditations inspired by ancient wisdom, psychological research, and just great strategies from normal dads just like you. Thanks for listening.